foes, they're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. Go pink for freedom, go pink for peace. That was Code Pink by Emma's Revolution. I am Wei. China is not our enemy campaign coordinator of Code Pink. Welcome to our Code Pink radio show, presented by WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington DC, KPFT 90.1 FM in Houston, KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. And many other community radio stations like Western Mass Community Broadcasting WMCBLP 107.9 FM. We are also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Check out our website at www.codeping.org/radio, where you will find all our episodes from episode one to our most recent. For the past two weeks, the U.S. has been taken over by a frenzy over a balloon. A Chinese balloon was discovered in U.S. airspace. China responded to the discovery that the balloon was a civilian airship for weather research that had drifted off course. Even the Pentagon said, "Quote: The balloon posed no serious physical or intelligence threat." Unquote. In a confusing situation like this, our leaders should remain level-headed and stay communicative with their counterparts in China to address the situation. However. U.S. politicians and mainstream media insisted on calling it a "quote-unquote" spy balloon. Secretary of State Antony Blinken postponed indefinitely his visit to China, which was scheduled for early February. The balloon is not the reason to cancel a state visit. The balloon entered U.S. airspace by accident, but the U.S. aggression towards China has been calculated. In November. USS Chancellorsville sailed into the South China Sea, intentionally threatening China's sovereignty. In December, President Biden signed NDAA 2023 into law, which promises $10 billion in arms sale to Taiwan, challenging the joint diplomatic statement Shanghai Communique that has ensured peaceful U.S.-China relations for more than 50 years. In early January. The U.S. Congress established a new House Select Committee on China, the first committee in U.S. history created for the purpose of competition with another country. Days before the balloon was discovered, U.S. military opened a new base in Guam and acquired access to four new bases in the Philippines, creeping ever closer to China's border. China has had to shoulder a tremendous amount of U.S. aggression to make sure diplomacy can continue. Yet U.S. politicians and mainstream media are adding to tension instead of de-escalating it. We know balloons have accidentally entered U.S. airspace before. Just last year, during the Biden administration, a balloon was discovered near Hawaii and shot down promptly without making a splash. This time, the Chinese balloon was turned into a spectacle to manufacture consent for war. The warmongers let the balloon make its way from the west coast to the east before shooting it down, allowing time to generate attention and fuel tension. 
This is a calculated step as the U.S. ramps up aggression towards China. As the warmongers drive fear and hate, one and a half billion people living in China are dehumanized into one geopolitical rival. In this process, we are also dehumanized as we stop seeing humanity in others. To rehumanize Chinese people and ourselves, today we are hearing from CodePink co-founder Jody Evans in conversation with a longtime friend, Tings Chak. Tings Chak is a member of Dongshun News Collective and a researcher, artist, and cultural coordinator at Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. Tings is sharing her experience living in China for the past three years as a woman, a student, and a journalist reporting on China to a Western audience. Uh, we really uh, use these opportunities to have this conversation, I say, both to humanize China, but to humanize ourselves, that we are subjected to so much propaganda that dehumanizes us, that has us look um, at at people as the other instead of the we. And so as if we allow China to be dehumanized, it dehumanizes ourselves at the same time. And, and really this is a conversation, I wanna say with two friends. I've known Ting's, I don't know, eight, almost eight years now. And um, it's, we get caught, I, I call it in the weeds of the political conversation and where peace, where cooperation ha happens is in our connectivity with each other, in our understanding, in our opening ourselves up to um, learn, uh, which is a lot why we do these conversations, is what can we learn? Because we're denied so much information. We know that to be true uh, because we've got a campaign. Um, against PBS, who is censoring a movie about how China took the last 100 million people out of poverty after it took another 700 million people out of poverty. And so we know we're not getting the truth. We know we live in a sea of propaganda. We know that um, the, goal, the tools of war are, it's a, it hasn't changed you know, since the end of World War II. It's othering, it's demonizing, it's you know making someone else a, an enemy, um, which then allows you to like use weapons and what I say is murder people because if they're dying, they're being murdered. There, there, there is no excuse for war. So here we are to be human together, to be humanized. Um, and so this is really a conversation. We are, you know, the drums, Ukraine took up a bunch of time and and was we were all in the fog of war with Ukraine. And now we're hearing the drums of war in Washington again for China. It's been a busy week. Uh, we disrupted uh, an event this week and maybe Wei can put in the tweet about that if anybody in the chat, if anybody wants to check that out. We disrupted an event which was literally war games on uh, Taiwan, really disgusting. Um, conversation that got disrupted by the Code Pink team, and then um, an, a vote in Congress where we were able to get actually more people in Congress to say no to a Cold War on China than we are able to get members of Congress to say, please call for a diplomacy, Biden, with Ukraine. So that's a little bit of good news. But, you know, as we say, it's easier to stop a war than to 
uh, it's easier to stop a war from starting than to stop a war which has already started. And that kind of proof is in the pudding with who we could get on board with both of these issues. Um, so, so you've been living in China almost three years. And I guess let's just start out. Oh, I also want to say that Ting's just did a piece on COVID um, because there were so many questions on COVID. And um, Wei will post that in the chat also. So we're probably not going to cover a lot there because she's already written so much on it. Um, but, you know, we're going to touch a little bit on these last three years because they are the COVID three years. Um, what um, have you learned in the last three years? Like, what would you say, you know, given the entering China and where you are now, what would you say some of the highlights of what you learned are? Mm, big question. But first of all, I just want to say thanks, Jody and the whole Code Pink team for having me again. I think it's amazing you continue to fight and create these spaces to dialogue and always on the front lines, you know, always following your work and trying to see what disruption you're up to. So this is great. Always happy to be here. I think these three years, it's, you know, it's so much to so much learning so much learning so much unlearning at the same time right i mean just a little bit of background of myself you know i'm from hong kong and and grew up in the west in canada and and spent a lot of my adult years back in the global south and which finally brought me back here for work and study but even though i've always had a chance to visit the mainland i still have family um, in guangdong uh, you know we frequently visited my grandfather's village or family um, there but i never lived in mainland china you know and now i'm currently in beijing the last time i had been here first and last time was 17 years ago and i think for many of us whether we're chinese uh, in other parts of china let's say not in mainland or in the diaspora or just people who have never lived here I think we have a lot of, I don't know, our perceptions of China can be kind of stuck in the past. They're sort of frozen in a different era, don't have an updated view. And that's maybe part of the reasons why some of these narratives can be um, taken advantage of in the media, particularly Western mainstream media. So I think it was a process of unlearning and really seeing a society that's quite dynamic, um, that has advanced in so many ways. I mean, I know sometimes there's a kind of interest in the technological, scientific, or digital developments, which is very important in daily life. But it's also the social aspects, um, sort of the 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 lifting up um, of hundreds of millions of people into a new middle class, um, the eradication of extreme poverty, and you feel that when you live uh, here. And I think that's the sort of social side of the economic growth that we don't get to see in the media. And I would think that was a big part. And it took it takes me a long time to also convince my own family, whether they're in Canada or Hong Kong or Macau, um, that, that China has changed significantly than the views we have from, let's say, I don't know, maybe stuck in the Cultural Revolution era or stuck in the early days of the opening up reform uh, or even stuck 15 years ago. It's just a very fast and changing society. You know, like I'm looking out my window right now, it's a bright blue sky in Beijing. That seems inconceivable. Even 10 years ago, the, you know, the last months I've been here, almost every day has been a bright blue sky. And I would have thought that was impossible thinking about the pollution that was in the early 2000s. 
So that's just a concrete example of, of just living and walking and breathing air here. It's still a long way to go, but uh, uh, it's impressive how much things can change in a short amount of time. Cool. Um, I didn't note in introducing you that you've, you, last time we talked to you, you were in Shanghai, but you've moved to Beijing to go to school, um, correct? And maybe give us a little bit of like, what's that like to go to school in China? I think you went to school in Canada before. And um, what moved you to, to go to, to school? Yeah, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I started my PhD this fall um, at Tsinghua University. I will say it's been a long time since I've been in university. <laughs> So whether or not it's in China or elsewhere, you're right. I did my my uh, both my undergrad and my master's in Canada, but that was a long time ago. So I've been adjusting the last few months, remembering all those things like selecting courses and you know those online platforms of how to submit your papers and etc. So it's been, it's been great, um, uh, and I'm you know balancing the work plus study. Um, which is interesting as well. I would say there's a lot of um, maybe two things that struck me um, that are quite different than studying in the West, let's say. Um, one is the experience of the canteens. Um, here, the canteens, cafeterias are all heavily subsidized. So um, I often like to take pictures and send to my friends to say, oh, I, you know, this would be equivalent of like 60 cents for a meal or something like that. And um, it's just such a vibrant place because you it's basically kind of a big food court where um, you can just pick little plates of food from all parts of China. And so it depends on you know, what day you feel like you want to have some Sichuanese food, some Cantonese food or whatnot. Um, and it's just this really collective experience. It's very different than I think the time I spent in Canada where I just felt like I was, you know, um uh like the 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 coca-cola stands or you know the kind of i don't remember the distributors but it was just like unhealthy food not um extremely expensive not subsidized um and anyway so it's very different experience and also the experience of just eating collectively it's it's uh, quite nice um another thing is i guess there is a different kind of culture of um um, respect for professors, I would say, here. Um, so for one example, it is uh, it is an environment where there's a lot less sort of group discussions. It is something more like, okay, you go and listen to the lectures, and that's something I'm getting used to as well. Um, but it's a super friendly environment. I think the first few days I was remembering, you know, many, many, many years ago when I did my undergraduate degree, um, you know, the kind of culture around drinking, culture of partying, culture, it's quite different here. Here it's, there's a lot of um, uh, a different kind of social life that's not centered around alcohol um, for students. So that was also refreshing. There's just a lot more, like the first few days, there was just so much like physical activity and games that people were playing all throughout the university. Um, I didn't really play, but I, I, I absorbed it all. And that was quite interesting to see as well. Oh, cool. That's fun. To, uh, it's, plus, it's a beautiful campus. I've seen your photos. It looks quite beautiful. Yeah, amazing. But that's true around, you know, that's true in Shanghai and Beijing. Just the beauty and the parks and the greenery is always so staggering that, you know, in yeah. such a big city. 
and everyone bikes um so that's one thing you really have to get used to like if you i always biked in cities i always you know use that as my transportation but um here's real biking you know when you have to enter the sort of rush hour of hundreds and hundreds of bikes on the campus <laughs> well i want to go back to covid so um you were living in shanghai when the first kind of quarantine shutdown hit what was that like a year ago um yeah in may around there may of, of not this year of, of last year yeah, yeah. Last so year. maybe like seven months ago mm -hmm. um what was that like you know that um you'd been free you know the whole world was suffering from covid and china hadn't really been suffering from it um once it'd been eradicated in the very beginning um and then it hit. What was that like? You were living in Shanghai, the first city to be locked down, correct? Well, actually, I think one of the things is, you know, three years, a lot of things happened. And I think right now in the recent months, especially in the Western media, it's kind of quite um, sensationalist about what has been happening is there's a kind of amnesia, I think short-term memory, you know, a short-term memory society, short-termism is how we, uh, see the world is that looking back um, for after the Wuhan period, which was controlled in about 73 days um, in that city. And that was a scary time, you know, because it was a virus that no one knew anything about. There were no vaccines and the city was shut down and the country mobilized its resources, sent tens of thousands of doctors and, and, and try to save lives. And that was the most important thing in that moment. But for the most, the vast majority of the last three years, I would say most of us lived a pretty normal life, you know, because especially the first trains, strains, the most deadly ones were contained pretty effectively by the zero COVID policy. So I think one of the things, and you mentioned the article, and I think shared it in the group here that I wrote was just this, I think I felt the need to be able to defend not all the kind of the bad and the ugly and the mistakes of that any government will make in terms of in front, uh, confronting such a difficult and like historic pandemic, but actually just remembering, it feels like there's that amnesia that for a long time, most of us were not living in lockdown. Uh, okay, you know, you wear masks in public spaces. That's not because we're like fearful of the government, but it's just because we're a collective culture and we want to protect people around us as much as we want to protect ourselves. That's just a normal thing. That's not even an issue. Um, or that we, maybe we had to take a PCR test before you travel from one city to the next. And there were sort of some um, pop-ups of, of cases that were controlled pretty quickly, sometimes with lockdown measures, sometimes with mass testing, sometimes with other measures because China was testing how to deal with this virus uh, in cities of different scales. You know, Shanghai is a place of almost 25 million people. It's massive. So I wanna just kind of at least bring that back to the present to remind us that that was the, the reality for most Chinese people for most of the last three years. Um, Shanghai was tough, you know, I spent the entire two months that the city was in lockdown, in lockdown. Um, I think there were, including the government itself, made its own criticisms of some of the um, lack of preparations or um, sort of slowness to act, you know, initially they wanted to sort of just close some areas and not the whole city and that, you know, um, the virus moved around. 
And I think it was also a learning about the new strains of virus, especially Omicron, are extremely transmissible. You know, the old measures that worked quite well with even Delta or the previous variant um, wasn't as effective for something that transmits that fast. That was also at the same time less deadly. So this is also kind of a testing ground, the Shanghai moment, as much as it was tough for, for all of us, it was a learning moment for now, this period of transition to um, a more relaxed uh, uh, COVID policy. Um, and it's learning from that. One thing I did learn, even though they spent two months in my house, which on the good side is I, after you know initial period of figuring out how to buy food, and that was sorted out pretty quickly. There's a lot of neighborliness. And I think you'll like this because I know Code Pink is very um, interested in building a local peace economy. I think in some ways, many of us learned that, uh, that kind of local level solidarity. Of course, the government was there and sent boxes of food when they could, but it wasn't everything that you needed. So a lot of the community groups um, and just neighbors got together, formed WeChat groups. WeChat is our, our social media. It's kind of like WhatsApp form groups to bulk buy, uh, to kind of check in on each other, especially the elderly who are the most vulnerable, uh, you know, um, exchange food. You know, I knew a neighbor on the third floor that had a baby and, you know, did she have enough milk, that kind of thing. So a lot of people experience that uh, neighborliness. Uh, in a city so big, it's sometimes hard to recover that. So that is also, I think, I think a silver lining of that experience. So um, during that period of time before the lockdown, you got to travel a lot around China and um, you talked about how large uh, Shanghai is. I think one of the things I think that's also confusing to the US is there were like all of China never was in lockdown. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe, maybe 200 million people were locked down in a I actually don't know the numbers, but maybe in terms of major cities, about 10 cities over the last three years have experienced a kind of lockdown um, and they vary in length. You know, for example, Guangzhou uh, was um, very, oh yeah, Guangzhou was pretty fast. Uh, they did a lockdown about seven to 10 days around the time that uh, Shanghai was in lockdown, but that was about two months. So it this says a lot about local implementation and just different measures and effectiveness and so it's not all one blanket thing, but on the whole, I mean, China's massive country, 10 cities in a country so big is not that much. So probably about a billion people weren't in lockdown. Yeah. Least. Or if they were uh, in terms of like experience, some isolation would have been short periods of time, you know, oh, if they got COVID or if they, you know, were near someone with, um, you know, with COVID or high risk of being, uh, having COVID, that kind of thing. But it was not the vast majority of the experience for most of the last three years. So could you tell us, like you, you did get to travel and you talked about getting the test before you got on a plane or whatever. And so I have a bunch of travel questions, like where did you get to go? Um, what What's travel like? The planes, the fast trains, the subway? There's so many interesting, you know, ways to get around. Um, and um, also, I think people don't understand the city tier thing. If there, you could explain the first, second, third tier rural kind of, that's a, yeah. a big thing in a question, but like, what's it like to travel and where are they, where did you go? Sure. No, I mean, I would have loved to travel more than I actually did. That's not because of COVID. That's just because of work and time. Um, but I did have a chance to go uh, have a couple of trips that for me were very meaningful. 
Um, of course, both in terms of the tiering, uh, responding to your question, is that China has four tier one cities. Uh, so Shanghai, Beijing, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, both of those are in the south, um, in Guangdong province where I'm from. Um, but uh, these are the mega cities. And then we tier down for, for different scales. And it's not just the size of population, but it's like infrastructure, you know, kind of different facilities. There's a whole set of metrics of how a city is classed that way. And, and it's a way to also help implement policy. That being said, you know, um, I, one experience I had was going to, I think it's a tier three or four city in Guizhou. And I remember talking to a friend who's from Beijing. So she's used to always living in a big city. And she's like, oh yeah, it's, it's like, a, it's a small town, you know? It's a very small tier three, four city. And it's a city of 4 million people, you know? So in any other context, it'd be a massive city, you know? In the city I lived in, um, in Toronto, I think it's just about 5 million. So that's the biggest city in Canada. And so anyways, that gives it perspective of how, what scale is. But that would be a, a lower tiered city. Um, so very much still up and coming in one of the poorest regions, uh, poorest provinces. And that was a great experience because I went with um, some researchers of Tricontinental, uh, which you mentioned, to do a study to go and, and visit some of the places of the uh, poverty alleviation campaign. Uh, Guizhou was one of the provinces that was a focus of this campaign. Uh, trying to look at basically um, the poor in the rural areas of the regions that had not been developed as quickly as and, and prioritized for development, like in the Eastern part in places like Shanghai and, and, um, uh, and, and Beijing, for example. So that being said, it was amazing experience going from the kind of city to the countryside, um, um, getting to talk to, uh, you know, women, uh, youth, elders, um, you know, party members, uh, uh, people who work in businesses who had been also sent by the businesses to live and work with families who are uh, were in poverty and kind of over the years uh, uh, create a plan somehow collectively um, to exit extreme poverty. And it was an incredible experience, uh, especially when you do the travel at that point was living from Shanghai to get to the countryside to understand uh, how life in the countryside has really improved. You know, I remember talking to a woman uh, and she became in the process of this lifting herself out of poverty. She ended up joining the party and becoming a local leader. As she was said that in the countryside, she used to have to walk at least two hours a day to take her kid to school uh, there and back. Uh, and so that would be four or five hours a day. Now, you know, she lives in a community where there is health clinics, there's a school, um, there's daycare. Uh, she says, I live, I lived, I live upstairs and I work downstairs because she's now a local, um, uh, local uh, party official um, that what basically is there to serve, you know, hundreds of families and knocks on the doors of all these families and helping them because she felt like she was really helped in this process. And her kid is, you know, two minute walk from, from her school. So these kinds of improvements are very concrete and material in people's lives. It uh, means that every day she has four or five extra hours to do what she actually really wants to be doing, which is contributing to her community. I think that's just one example of millions and millions I could, I could go on about. Um, and another trip I did, which was really meaningful, me, meaningful for me personally, is I got to go back to my grandfather, my, my maternal grandfather's village. Uh, and it's been maybe almost 10, 12 years that I hadn't been. And since my grandfather had gone quite old, he hadn't had a chance to go back. So I really wanted to do that for him at the time he was in the hospital. 
Uh, he actually just passed away a few months ago, but I was really happy to be able to go back to the village that he left when he was 12, you know, during wartime, during Japanese occupation, and he left on his own to go to Macau and where he spent the, most of his life. But, you know, it was great. I did a Zoom call on, on like the hilltop of a little memorial that he had built for his parents and all the villagers were there and remembering him and talking to him. And we all had a great time. And I also got to bring my partner and they were really excited because they had never seen a Brazilian before. So, and it was fun. And the night ended up with us at the karaoke, you know, um, with the, a lot of our, you know, relatives and villagers. It was great fun. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jody and Tings. And to our listeners, you can follow Tings Chak's work at Dongsheng News by visiting dongsheng.org and Tricontinental Institute for Social Research by visiting thetricontinental.org. You're listening to Code Pink Radio, coming to you through Pacifica Radio's WPFW in Washington, D.C., WBAI in New York City, KPFT in Houston, and KPFK in Los Angeles. We will be back after this break and continue to hear from Jody and Tings. the power to conjure up your light wrong or right good or bad love can make it right that was love has the power by shrinka rakim featuring percolations Shrinka is a grassroots spiritual practitioner who raises the vibration of love across cultural, racial, gender, and economic divides. As the drums of war on China are roaring, we shall be guided by love and see humanity in others, because love has the power to make peace. Welcome back. I am Wei. China is not our enemy campaign coordinator of Code Pink. You are listening to Code Pink Radio coming to you through Pacifica Radio's WPFW in Washington, D.C., WBAI in New York City, KPFT in Houston, and KPFK in Los Angeles. We are continuing to hear from Code Pink co-founder Jody Evans in conversation with Tings Chak. Tings is sharing her experience living in China for the past three years as a woman, a student, and a journalist. What's it like to be a woman in China? Is there anything you find different that's there? Yeah, I think there is something. I, for the first few months I was here, it's a quite profound experience or realization. And at first, I didn't know how to. I didn't know how to put a name to it. Just um, by by the fact that you know in Shanghai the streets are pretty safe for a woman to walk in. And right before this, I was I was living in Sao Paulo in Brazil. So compare big city to big city. Uh, and before that, I was in Johannesburg in South Africa. And then before that, I was in Toronto in Canada. So have a get a bit of that north south big city experience. But I would say uh, between Shanghai and Beijing, I've never 
been in a place as a woman walking the streets, I can feel so safe. Um, and, and, and I think obviously one of the things is, you know, I'm Chinese. So, you know, is that one of the reasons like I, I blend in, even if I am not from these cities. I, and I talked to a lot of friends who are also from other places and, and they experience, you know, this, a very similar experience. Um, you know, I, I can go out and late at night or feel like, oh, I went out and went to a bar and come home on my own and generally feel very safe. And I didn't know how much mental energy that we as women, ha I mean, it's not that I don't want to paint this as a kind of place we, where we've gotten rid of patriarchy and there's no violence against women or nothing. I don't want to do that. But just the mental energy of um, not having to always watch my back, uh, always sort of be aware, oh, where's my cell phone? Uh, you know, I can't have it in my hand. Um, just so much mental energy is spent. And I that's the thing I couldn't understand when I first moved here. I actually had more mental space and emotional space to think about other things and do other things um, with the energy. And that was something you can't quantify, you know, uh, you just feel it. And I, so I've had this conversation with so many women from different places that say that say that exact same thing. And and of course, like that isn't just an accident, you know? Um, yes, you know, I was making a joke that, you know, there's, I don't think there's any place in the world where we've managed to smash patriarchy yet. And that's unfortunate and we're still working on it and we're not giving up. But there were huge gains made in the early socialist period, you know, like in terms of education, the social aspects or, or, you know, kind of flipping around the whole idea of marriage and, and women in the workplace and participation in political life. Um, so that that is present and think in, in terms of when, when we say, oh, Mao said women uh, lift up half the sky, you know, that that became a value. But of course, we know that, you know, patriarchal views, traditional view, views, culture, it that takes a long time to change. This is a millennial culture that um, takes a long time to change. Uh, and of course, economics, the political landscape has also changed really rapidly, especially in the last decades. You know, we're not in a time of the family planning of one child policy anymore. But doesn't mean that, you know, young women are now eager and jumping to want to get married or have a child or feel like, um, motherhood and wifehood like is necessary to complete herself. So there's all sorts of questions now about being a woman, I think, in, in China um, that's much more nuanced uh, than one gets to read in the Western media. Um, and there's just such a much more diverse kind of set of questions and um, choices in life that were never afforded in, in literally 5,000 years of history for, for women here. Um, or anywhere in the world, really. So, yeah, I think those are some reflections and, and many of them. Um, and I'm really glad to be able to also have a group of, of friends and women here from different parts, uh, different parts of China, but also different parts of Global South that get to exchange on these, these topics a lot. But I think it's one of the stories that gets most misrepresented, I would say. Cool, thank you. So what kind of research do you do and why? You know, what you're there, you're doing research. Um, fill us in. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as you mentioned, you know, I, I'm with Tricontinental and I've been with the Institute uh, for the last five years since it was founded. And my main role is to um, work on art and culture. And that's interesting because I think 
Um, for anyone who's you know of the left, who are socialists, who are part of social movements and organizations, um, it's I think it's there's a kind of sometimes a we get cut off from our own history of struggles um, that came before us. And particularly what I'm interested in my research is kind of recovering the artistic and cultural work of, of different liberation struggles, especially of the global South from Cuba to Indonesia, to China to elsewhere, and trying to connect that back into uh, our present struggles, kind of feed our present struggles. So um, I would say that's a big part of my work because I really do, feel like as a socialist that in order for us to build socialism it's also part of the battle of ideas the battle over our emotions you know the battle to create or become more human human beings um, that is impossible under capitalism and then i uh, another part of my research and i think it's very linked you know um given that i do live in a a socialist country and and part of it in these conversations is to try to explain or be a little bit of a bridge of what the project of socialism has been like in China. Um, and part of that is just providing news, as you mentioned, and thanks for giving a plug to the Dongsheng uh, work, because a few of us researchers, some from here, but some from other parts of the world, from you know Zambia, South Africa, Argentina, Brazil, we kind of came together and said, we need information, you know, and not, it doesn't have to be even, you know, you don't even need to want to be a socialist or believe in socialism. It's just you need information. I think it does a great disservice to the world if we think that a country of this size uh, developing in this speed and of this you know, length of history doesn't have anything to offer, uh, doesn't have anything that we can learn from and that we can sort of uh, one fell swoop, just think that it's, it's um, you know, the China bad narrative or something like that. So it's just to provide uh, some facts, information, and then also now opening up to other kinds of projects like we have a podcast that's hosted by these great, two great friends, Mika Madeus, about the China Africa experience um, based from a South African and Zambian perspective. Um, we're trying to also bring what we call the Chinese voices, you know, some of the intellectual debates and the public debates that come in China because there's a sort of thinking that, you know, there's no debates in one in a country of 1.4 billion people, but there is a lot. And we want to bring a little bit of those perspectives, whether or not, you know, I personally will agree with the views. I think it's important that we have, you know, that kind of uh, nuance and, and, and like possibility for those who are interested to learn a little bit more. And everyone can access those at Dongsheng News, right? Both the crane and the, um, yeah. And, the places. So, and we're all on the social media platforms. So if you search Dongshan News, you'll you'll find us. Cool. Well, I just want to, you know, take that a little further. You people in the West often portray China as an oppressive dictatorship without democracy or human rights. Um, how do you speak to that? You know, I think I know that, I mean, of course, I'm someone who believes in human rights and humanity and people's lives over profit. And I would say, if you ask any Chinese person here, um, they will probably say they believe they live in a country that 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 supports just that. Uh, but sometimes I think the whole human rights narrative in a liberal sense gets kind of weaponized against people. And that seems really bizarre, right? And I feel that very strongly um, being Chinese and being here, how human rights is kind of used against us in some weird way to save us. Um, I look at one thing, you know, I, I think um, 
especially doing research around the poverty campaign, it helped kind of help me understand what democracies and what human rights is in a much more expansive and I think much deeper way than just go to the ballot boxes every four years to choose um, you know, a president or prime minister or what have you. We know the corruption of that system as well. Um, but one of the things is, um, you know, in China, let's say democracy, and I do believe there is democracy, just not electoral democracy. There's a democracy of a different form. When you go down to the grassroots level and had the privilege of being able to do that, and in fact, it, that film that Code Pink has been trying to get reinstated from um, about poverty, China's war on poverty, which I really encourage everyone to have a watch. It's still on CGTN on the China partner side. So please do watch it. You get to see on the grassroots level how democracy is actually practiced and enacted. Um, so for example, the kinds of um, uh, uh, democratic evaluation processes that happen to be able to ensure, to, to determine if someone is um, you know, registered as poor, if someone has been lifted out of poverty, if someone has returned out of poverty, it's a very collective process that, for example, all the villagers and all the local officials, but plus the party members are involved in. It's a collective process of, of, of debate and dialogue and oftentimes voting. There's processes of direct voting at the local levels, which then those representatives elect their representatives above and et cetera, et cetera. And, and for a country of such a size, there's a very complex political mechanism of, of uh, getting uh, uh, information, getting responses from the bottom all the way to the top. And, and, and it's, it's a machinery that is fascinating to learn more about. And I'm not claiming to be an expert on that, but those processes exist. Um, I think another thing in terms of human rights, I, you know, I think it was quite shocking looking back at the last three years of the pandemic. Um, one thing that happened is that for the first time in history, um, China's life expectancy actually surpassed that of the US. I mean, US, of course, China is the second largest economy, but it's still a de developing country. Uh, the US, um, because in large part because of the huge amount of deaths, uh, I think recorded now is 1.1 million people in COVID that could have been avoided uh, for a country of that size and, and wealth, uh, but didn't, right? Um, and that actually caused a decline, one of the highest declines since I've seen since, you know, people are comparing to World War, World War II to, you know, um, uh, the 1920s or, you know, it's a shocking numbers. Um, but when we look back historically, you know, when the PRC, People's Republic of China, was founded in 1949, the life expectancy was 36 years old. It was that helps you understand sort of the, the poverty of the country, the situation of the country, and how weak the country was when it's founded. In the US, it was already 68. So it already arrived at such a high level of, of, of development. And, and, and I think um, why am I talking about um, the life expectancy? Because it accumulates a lot of things, you know, uh, it's about um, education, it's about uh, access to, uh, to healthcare, it's about, you know, questions of gender, many things are embedded in the question of, of life expectancy. So that's just to say in the last eight decades, the average Chinese person has more than doubled their lifespan, and this is in living memory, while the average person in the U.S. has gained one year of their life per decade. That's, you know, that says a lot when people 
when you ask um, a Chinese person to say, oh, no, you're you're really being oppressed. Your life is terrible. We need to save you. They're saying we're living some of the best lives we've ever lived. And they see it in their material lives. They see the improvements. They see the infrastructure. They see the, the, the lifting out of poverty. They see people getting into universities and the uh, education system improving. They see healthcare improving. And you can't convince them that they don't live in a society that cares about people and don't live in a society that doesn't have human rights. It's just not possible. Thank you. I mean, uh, you know, bringing up that movie again, we we actually have the one not on CGN. We have the original that was um, censored and we're asking people to show it to their communities. So wait, because I think what you just said is all in that movie about, they, it's not about money. It's about creating a whole infrastructure that supports life. And, and that's basically the answer to how did they lift people out of poverty? And I forgot it's the five and the three or the two or like whatever the thing that you did on your last conversation, because I do think it's interesting about how you address something both with a plan, but also with humanity and both were present and that there's lots of opportunities for everybody listening to go there and learn that. But Tings, what you were saying is that it's like, yes, you know, there's a life expectancy in the United States, but also if you are poor or a person of color in the United States, your life expectancies in the, you know, low 60s. So it's also gone backwards in a way. And in the South, I think there's a eight year difference of life expectancy from a red state to a blue state. Mm -hmm. So that very much that taking out of poverty and the democratic process that is the commitment to life that that is, is why I think it's censored because it's, it's, it could change life in the United States and it is changing life in China. And I think that's in this effort right now to humanize China, I think that is a really core piece of this conversation is what does a socialist government do? It serves the people. What does a capitalist government do? It serves capital. And, the, and capital is the destructive, extractive, um, oppressive economy. So uh, thank you for um, illuminating that. Um, I just, one more question, um, because you talked about the work you do and the research you do as about culture. Um, where now? besides Dongsheng News, uh, could people learn about popular culture in China? What movies to watch? You know, what are the big issues? I mean, I guess we can see that at Dongsheng News, but where, where do we be able to tap into Chinese culture if we can't go? Yeah, well, the borders are opening now, so hopefully people have a chance to see for themselves and, and also get a chance to know China, you know? Um, but that aside, there are lots of things to learn more about China that isn't on Netflix. Um, but uh, well, one of the things um, to maintain the keep with the Dongshan plug is there's always a section on in the digests on people's life and culture. And so we try to bring more of those social stories and also some some trends. Um, so you can kind of stay tuned for that that section every week. There's definitely a couple things that's interesting culturally. Um, it's really impressive also, I think, being here is to see how much, you know, the film industry and the production quality has really improved. Uh, and to the point where I think people here are actually maybe one of the only countries in the world where um, Hollywood films are kind of tanking now, you know, because people are preferring to see Chinese films. 
Um, lots of amazing series. Uh, depends on what you like, because what I like might not be what your audience likes. But I'll, I'll suggest two TV series um, that are online. You can find them on YouTube and you can find them with English subtitles uh, that were really popular in the last couple of years. One is called Minning Town, um, since I really do like stories about the countryside. Um, it's about uh, poverty alleviation um, and the kind of struggles in a town, in a, in a village. Um, and it's about, you know, the women in the period, especially in the early days of opening up reform, the women going into the cities to work in factories, and then also trying to create like a local economy um, based on uh, different kinds of farming. And in this case was around mushroom farming and all the difficulties of having, you know, to negotiate between um, you know, party members and how to they serve the local population and then all sorts of things. Beautiful, I think is a really beautiful series. Uh, and another one who is, I think it's recommended for those who want to learn more about sort of socialists and Marxist history um, is called The Age of Awakening. It's about the kind of 1910s, 20s, and when Marxist ideas were coming into the country and the kind of pre-formation of the party. Uh, also amazing, very historical, uh, uh, historically dense, but you know, for, for kind of history nerds like me, that's a fun one. Um, there's also some great films. I mean, I haven't been, I haven't sadly haven't been to the theaters in a few months, but the last one I watched, there's a lot of great comedies. Um, there's one called Moon Man that was quite big this last year. Um, it's like a science fiction comedy. Um, Basically, long story short, is that there's a maintenance worker on the moon station uh, left behind when they had to all evacuate because an asteroid was about to hit. Uh, but he was too, he's a bit of a, you know, funny guy, wasn't really paying attention to the alerts, was busy dancing, whatever. And he gets left behind with a kangaroo on the moon. And so it's that kind of humor, but great. Um, and then I'll mention one more movie, which I really loved. I think it was from two years ago. And I think this says something uh, broader culturally in terms of the themes. I think you mentioned like what kind of are the topics. So this film was called The High Mom and it really took the country by storm. It's uh, well, first time um, woman director. She's, she's, um, uh, she's a comedian. Um, she directed this film and it's a kind of semi-autobiographical. Uh, it's about her story um, uh, when her mom passed away suddenly in a car accident. It was like a, she goes back in time and meets the younger version of her mom who was working in a factory at the time and they become friends. You know, she travels back in time and gets to sort of learn about her life and, you know, see her moms in a different way. And that was, you know, that's interesting to think it wasn't films about war or end of the world or anything. It was actually a film about like mother daughter, a relationship. Um, and it was such a huge social hit because people started posting online photos of their moms in the 80s and like writing lots of appreciation notes of saying, oh, you know, how you were so beautiful or things sometimes like you shouldn't have married him, you know, <laughs> those are the kinds of things. And that was the biggest hit of the year. And she has now, um, this director is now the biggest grossing woman director, all time film history in the world. So these kinds of things that happen that I'm like, this is, this says something about the mood, I guess, or the, the spirit of the society, right? Uh, it's definitely a, 
not a warmongering and a very much, you know, a pro-peace, let's say, kind of message. Well, that says a lot about the humanizing that's happening, you know, in China, which is not how we see them. So shame on the United States for seeing it in such a different way. Um, Mark asks, do Chinese people feel threatened by the belligerent rhetoric from the US government and media towards China? Okay, I mean, that's a good question. Um, this last three years has been tough because as much as the pandemic was hard for everyone, then I think the US really increased its attacks and, and, uh, and sort of assaults against China in various ways. So kind of hit them while they're down type of mentality I think the US has. And one thing I think is important to note that most Chinese people, as much as it's not about a question of censorship or not, or having access to the West is that they don't actually read a lot of the Western media. I mean, not only do they not speak English, they don't look for it. It's just, you know, the US is not the center of the world of an average Chinese person. And unfortunately, I think for a lot of people in the US, it's hard to like recognize that most of the world doesn't think about them all the time. But um, that being said, yeah, I mean, there was, it was a really, I think, I think when the moment of Nancy Pelosi kind of defining all international norms decided, to land in in Taipei, that was a shock, and that was that hurt a lot of people, in the sense of that's a direct violation of the One China principle, and and for Chinese people, there's nothing more dear than the question of you know uh, national unification or, or addressing this history of of imperialism that is a history that's still ongoing as we see what's happening in Taiwan and the aggressions that are happening, the provocations that are happening. Um, in terms of is there a fear? Um, I'm not sure if there's a fear. Surely is an anti-war sentence people don't want. I mean, China has doesn't have the track record that the US has in terms of militarism, in, in terms of um warmongering. It just isn't a country, even for you know, before it was the PRC, that was the case. So um there is no appetite to go and start a war because that's just not also in the nature. Um, so anything we can do, I think we have to, I think that's why the work of Code Pink is so essential, is to continue to forward an anti-war um, message that's essential for humanity. Thank you so much, Jody and Tings. And to our listeners, you can follow Tings Track's work at Zhongsheng News by visiting dongsheng.org and Tricontinental Institute for Social Research by visiting thetricontinental.org. This International Women's Day on March 8th, Code Pink is organizing a global day of action to call for diplomacy and peace. In the midst of the Ukraine war, and as the U.S. continues to beat the drums of war towards China, feminists around the world are rising to say no to war. You can learn about how to join our coalition and host an event by visiting codepink.org slash IWD2023. Thank you for listening to Coping Radio, coming to you through Pacifica Radio's WPFW in Washington, D.C., WBAI in New York City, KPFT in Houston, and KPFK in Los Angeles.